Welcome to Future of Journalism, a podcast from the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. I'm Gretel Kahn, one of the members of the Institute's editorial team. In this episode, we'll explore our latest report on how people access news about climate change, which we're publishing two weeks before COP28 kicks off, and in a year when the news has been dominated by so many effects of the climate crisis. Our report offers fresh insights on climate news consumption patterns in France, Germany, Japan, the United Kingdom, the United States, Brazil, India, and Pakistan, all of which contend with the profound impacts of climate change. It is a unique piece of research as it covers key countries in the global south and provides insights for both journalists and policymakers on the intersection between health, politics, climate justice, and the news media. In this podcast episode, we'll provide answers to key questions on this topic. How do audiences follow news on climate change? Which sources and platforms do they blame for climate misinformation? Are the news media doing a good job in conveying the urgency of the issue? How do factors such as age and ideology influence how audiences see climate change? Joining us today are Mitali Mukherjee, Acting Director of the Reuters Institute and Director of its Journalist Programs and Wakas Ajaz, one of the members of our research team. Mitali Wakas and our director of research, Richard Fletcher, are the authors of Climate Change News Audiences, Analysis of News Usage and Attitudes in Eight Countries, a new report on how audiences follow the news on the climate crisis. Uh, thank you all for joining us today. Gretel, thank you for having this conversation and uh, having both Wakas and I. Thank you, Greta. So let's start with you, Mitali. Uh, The report covers a lot of ground when it comes to news and climate change. What would you say was the goal when approaching this piece of research and how do you do it? Um, So just as a very brief piece of context first, the Oxford Climate Journalism Network has been very successful in working with journalists across the world and really trying to build a syntax around climate and trying to build awareness on what climate journalism or journalism with a climate lens should look like. Um, Having said that, I think the research part of what we do within the network stands out for a few reasons. We have at the Reuters Institute been almost sort of front runners and leaders in terms of working on audience research that provides not just valuable and insightful, but I think often critical information for newsrooms that are trying to understand how audiences are engaging with news. And we decided to do that uh, this time around with a climate lens. Our main purpose here is really to understand how people are accessing news, how they're evaluating that that, that climate news, and uh, you know how that's shaping their information around climate change. I will say briefly, you know, why we were trying to set the the structure of what we were doing around research. We were very, very mindful of the fact that we wanted diversity both in geographies, in socioeconomic conditions, the relationship with news media, which is why um, we chose eight countries that we think are quite reflective of a big mix of what's happening across the world. So we've got countries like the USA, the UK, Japan, France, where there is a certain level of development, socioeconomically speaking. And then we've also got countries like India, Pakistan, Brazil, that are really uh, not just on a different cusp in terms of, you know, where things are moving for them uh, economically, but more importantly, that the whole climate landscape and the challenges that some of these countries face are quite unique uh, and often quite severe. 
And yeah, you mentioned the diversity of countries. And obviously, the the, the report focuses on the same eight countries you surveyed in 2022. Uh, what caused, what key changes have you found in terms of attitudes towards climate news and climate news avoidance in these eight countries? Uh, so there are basically two different ways for me to answer this question. One, in terms of changes, uh, surprisingly, we do not find significant changes across how people consume news in terms of which platforms they use, what are the main sources of information, who are the main sources of climate-related information. But what we did find was cross-country variation. So some countries have slightly increased consumption of climate change news compared to the others. But overall, if we look at the on the aggregate level, the situation remains pretty stable as it was uh, last year. On one hand side, it's a good thing. On the other hand side, it means that there is uh, the concerns that we had or we highlighted in the previous report. They can they continue and are reflected in this report as well. On the other hand, what uh, sort of uh, new thing in in a sense that this report offers is we try to tackle some new issues which we could not do it in the previous one. Specifically talking about uh, the issue regarding climate justice and climate uh, uh, change impact on health, where we see a lot of divergence and how people actually think about these very important issues. And I want to highlight here one key aspect. Since we are moving into COP28 in a couple of days, I think loss and damage and climate justice is going to be a big debate um, on uh, around the fringes of the conference. And our work actually kind of provides a context to those uh, debates in a way that how people make sense of uh, such issues. Uh, so uh, in that regard, this report offers some more nuanced information. Mitali, the report also reflects that significant proportions in every country think the consequences of climate change are at least a decade away. But also importantly, it shows that people who use climate change news regularly are more likely to think they're being affected by climate change right now. From your conversations with the members of our climate network, which kind of news coverage do you think it's most effective in conveying the importance and the urgency of the climate crisis? Um, that's a really interesting question. Thank you for that, Gretel. I will sort of start by saying that for those who may not be aware, the Climate Network takes in for a period of five months, 100 journalists, you know, in each cohort, and we work quite closely with them on building their their idea of what climate journalism should look like. So across 400 journalists now, we span more than 100 countries. Uh, I'm only sort of putting this as context to understand the fact that we are really speaking to people all across the world to get a sense of, you know, what's happening in their communities and what's happening in their countries. Um, there's interesting variations in terms of um, what people see as the consequences. Uh, but I will say that there are divergences in how people see that. So for some countries, actually, they don't see the climate impact as something far away. Uh, whereas in a few others, we found that people seem to have parked that a decade away from now. They don't think there is a, an immediate impact. Um, having said that, you know, just sort of going back to the point that Vakas was mentioning, which is that people are interpreting this or audiences are interpreting this in a different way. So even if people think climate impact is a few years away, they're very conscious of the fact that climate is impacting health for themselves and their families right now. You know, that's very urgent. And you're seeing that in countries like India, 
that has been plagued by, uh, you know, pollution that has been plagued, including Pakistan, by, uh, you know, inter, uh, you know, const constant flooding every year. Uh, and there are very real health consequences of that, which is what I think people are sort of palpably feeling. And that's something interesting we picked up in this report. Um, just switching to, you know, what it is that we're getting from our journalists who, who are a great repository, honestly, of, you know, information and knowledge sharing. One is the fact that um, people want more solutions journalism. And essentially, that means that they're looking for not just positive stories, but they're looking for what's working in a community and might be replicated in another. Uh, they want to know what the process of that is. They want to know how how feasible it is. And uh, they're looking for hope, I think, you know, amidst what, what can often be quite a grim uh, and dark landscape in terms of how things have been changing with climate change. It is also true that people more frequently engage in times of extreme weather events. So, you know, that does see a spike in terms of attention around the particular cl climate topic. But that's where I think working with journalists is so important because what you need to do as a journalist in a newsroom at that point is not just report the event as is, but have the syntax available to track back and go back to, you know, where this is leading from and what's brought us to this point where we're facing this extreme weather event. So I think solutions journalism, just more awareness around what's happening with extreme weather events, uh, that's something important. And as Vokas was mentioning, COP is generally sort of a red letter day for a lot of people who track journalists, uh, who, who track climate. So it is important, we think, for journalists to walk in with that information of what the wider audience is looking for and what they see as something they would like addressed, you know, both, both personally and for their communities when they attend these large conferences. Wakas, you mentioned that you pointed out that uh, the 2023 report looks into other topics that perhaps the 2022 report didn't touch upon. And one of those things is that you guys looked into news coverage of direct climate protests. That is protests that are that have thrown paints at buildings, glued themselves to works of art and block transport routes to raise awareness. What do you think about these protests and uh, what do people think about the protests and how do they respond to coverage of them? Yeah, this was uh, one of the concerns that we wanted to address because uh, there was a lot of disc discussion around why they, these protests are suddenly being so prevalent across some countries. So, in But one thing that we took care of was uh, these protests are not uh, as prevalent across all eight markets. So we tried to break it down to the four markets, which we know uh, is very, uh, which we have seen that these protests are taking place. Uh, so the focus was basically on US, France, UK, and Germany. Uh, the overall sentiment is that people are not uh, very supportive to the fact that such protests should be taking place. Uh, and in order to get a bit more nuance into it, we tried to look into the support for such protests across uh, young people and people from those who align themselves politically on the left or the right, uh, uh, as well as uh, differences between men and women. What we did find was that, of course, as you have seen, and a lot of our uh, listeners have already, already seen, that such protests are basically conducted most of the time uh, by young people. So there, there is a sufficient support among young audience uh, who are supportive of such tactics. Uh, in terms of uh, gender differences, we could not find it across countries. 
uh, in terms of uh, differences between the countries, we have some very nuanced picture in a way that, for example, Germany, in Germany, people are way more uh, against such protests compared to those who are uh, supportive of such uh, uh, types of protests. And uh, lastly, what is uh, perhaps the most important aspect across any climate change related debate is the political divide. In our work, we did see that people who align themselves and for the, the political left, they are more supportive of such tactics and such ways of protesting compared to those who align themselves. These are some of the nuances, uh, and I'm not going too much into the details about how each country looks different, what happens when people consume news, and how does consuming news impact their assessment towards uh, uh, these protests. Uh, Mitali, one of the most striking findings of the report is the fact that not just climate scientists, but also climate activists are both more visible and more trusted than governments and politicians when it comes to climate change news. Do you think this should shape news coverage of the issue? Um, so let me say two things. One, that this was unsurprising compared to, you know, what we found last year. And the second, that I, I, I think part of it already is, you know, Gretel, uh, first of all, in our report, across the board, it, across eight countries, I mean, there exists, uh, it seems quite clearly, a fairly fragile relationship between the larger audience and politics or politicians when it comes to climate-related information that is shared by politicians or political groups. Um, so, you know, there is that sense that either the information is not completely true or there is a sense that not enough is being done by way of policy action. And I think that's the big thing and the big headline to take away from the relationship with, with politics, which is that, you know, fairly important questions are being raised now about policy failure and climate action. What I will say, and I think this is extremely important, is who's the linchpin in this process? You know, who's kind of linking this uh, this broken relationship? Um, and that is actually back to the media and back to the news. We found that across all eight countries, the wider public's belief in the media holding influential blocks like politicians or industry or business accountable is very high. And I think that is an important message both to news organizations and to journalists, which is that your work matters and your work around climate matters a lot. People put a lot of credence into, you know, what news organizations are doing, what they're reporting on, and what they're throwing a light on in terms of climate issues. And they do see the media as a powerful instrument in actually creating some change in that regard. And um, I don't want to use the word pushing, but encouraging, uh, you know, uh, pockets like politicians and industrialists to change for the better. I will also say uh, that one important thing we sort of delved into, because that's becoming a big issue and it was raised in the IPCC report as well, is climate misinformation and disinformation. Uh, part of it harks back to our findings from the digital news report as well, where we found that there has been an increase in misinformation around climate. We're seeing it, honestly, on social media platforms like X, where many climate scientists and experts are facing an incredible amount of, uh, you know, hate and trolling for what they're putting out as researched information around climate change. Uh, so I think it makes it all the more important for us to put out what the wider audience feels at this point, which is that there is high trust in climate scientists. 
there is a, a belief that the media can do quite a bit in terms of, you know, creating change. Um, and there's low trust in politicians. And I think that's something that they should take on board. And if there's low trust in politicians, political parties and governments, uh, which are survey frequently names as sources of false and misleading misinformation, uh, information, do you think journalists should be more careful reporting what they say? I think journalists should always be careful what they say in terms of sort of, you know, uh, being careful about their attribution, careful about their sources. But, I, you know, I, I will also say that I think this is a more tricky uh, terrain for journalists purely because, and this is our interaction from journalists within our network, often they don't have the resources to do that. They don't know where to go to get the right syntax or to get the most legitimate information or the most updated information. And that's where networks like the Oxford Climate Network, which is what we run, sort of complements what we are finding, you know, in our research, which is that there is a high degree of interest amongst journalists to tell the story better. Uh, we need to equip them with the tools to be able to do that. You know, I mean, if you ask 20 years back whether journalists were fully equipped to report on, on technology, say, or on finance, Perhaps it didn't have the requisite tools, but then a process was created to build that. And that's exactly, you know, what, what we need to be doing at this point, especially when there is a situation where um, there is a low level of trust in politicians who often might be the ones running the government as well. Following that train of thought, a staggering up to 80 percent of respondents across the eight countries say that they are at least somewhat concerned about false or misleading news about climate change. Waka's what do our figures suggest about the sources of climate misinformation and the channels where our audience finds it? Uh, one thing that I, before I answer the question, I think what is really important to consider here is that uh, the number, like what you mentioned, 80% respondents concern, this is not something new. We have seen this consistently across many of our reports, in the digital news reports across the years. This is uh, this is like a consistent trend across markets, uh, even in the individual. We have highs and lows, but the concern has always been there. Uh, when we wanted to do, do the same for our climate change uh, coverage and news, we were mindful of the fact that we are talking about, and I think this is important for the listeners as well, that we did not really talk about specific misinformation. We just uh, subjectively assess their opinion about how much they think they come across misinformation or how much uh, uh, how much do they think the frequency of climate change misinformation is compared to other type of misinformation. So having said that, uh, what is, uh, I just would like to mention two things more concerning the findings. Uh, first of all is the concern that people had was the same as uh, in the in the previous report and the this year report, so the concern has been consistent. Uh, what is worth mentioning here is that uh, we tried to compare three different types of uh, misinformation, uh, and one was politics, and the other one was government policies, and the third one was climate change. We wanted to see how much difference people would. Uh, uh, have an opinion about in terms of uh, seeing misinformation across these three uh, uh, types of information. What was uh, a bit surprising for me was we did not see a lot of variation. For example, on an average, uh, almost 25 or a quarter, more than a quarter of our respondents uh, on average 
come across all three types of misinformation. So having, what does it mean? It means that climate change misinformation is as prevalent as the misinformation about politics and government. This is, this is kind of worrying in a way that, okay, politics being a polarizing issue and people have opinions and then people have their own identity-based cues. Similarly, government policies are also made with uh, polarization. But climate change, I won't say that it's above and beyond politics, but this is something that th we, we see that uh, panning out in right in front of our eyes. But despite the fact that this is so prevalent of an issue, we still, if people, a uh, quarter of our respondents across all countries are seeing that um, as as issue as, as prevalent as any other, this is sort of something that we need to look into. Uh, and we had some countries where actually misinformation on climate change was uh, perceived uh, higher than uh, government policies and uh, again, indication that this is something that uh, journalists as well as uh, being uh, consumers of social media and uh, traditional media should be mindful of. But uh, I would just conclude by saying one small aspect of the, the findings. Uh, although we talk about that misinformation is a problem, and which it is, uh, we also need to be careful by making the assumption that how prevalent and how, mu how much people come across this. So it, with that in mind, we ask people how frequent do they think they come across such information. And uh, we asked this the same question previous year and as well as this year. So there is not a lot of difference. Uh, so all, around a quarter of our respondents felt that they come across frequently. Uh, and in fact, uh, this this been the trend across all markets as well. Um, and in terms of the sources that you mentioned, um, like what Vitaly was saying, uh, politicians has been uh, politicians have been the main source of misinformation. Whenever people recall where they hear the misinformation from, who are the main sources, um, and then we have some indications that uh, in the data that people, in terms of platforms, online media platforms social media platforms and TV news uh, both are both have been termed as uh, uh, where people come across uh, climate related misinformation but not so much as the individual uh, offline media newspaper radio for example uh, so that's uh, so there's a lot of lot to unpack when it comes to climate misinformation but some of the findings were uh, similar to the last year report and this year he added a bit more nuance in terms of how we uh, make sense of the findings. As you mentioned, Wakas, uh, public opinion is very polarized based on political ideology on issues like climate justice. And one of the clear insights from the report is that political leaning matters when approaching some of the issues raised by climate change. Mitali, I was wondering if you could give us a few examples of issues in countries where this divide is the most clear. So I think I might, instead of breaking it up into countries, uh, do a sort of more rough difference, which is, for lack of a better term, the global north and the global south, brittle, which is, you know, countries like Brazil, India, Pakistan, when we're looking at the global south, and uh, countries like the UK, France, etc., when we're looking at the global north. Um, I think, you know, this has sort of come up previously in our conversation, but there is a significant difference between the left and the right in, you know, uh, the developed countries, if you will, or the global north, if you will, 
when we're looking at people on the left expressing interest in climate news compared with people on the right, politically speaking, where, you know, that stood at 40%, whereas for the left, it stood at about 56%. Um, again, I would say there are sort of gradients and differences in how they perceive particular challenges. Vakas was speaking earlier about uh, the protests and, you know, how people on different ends of the polit political spectrum either support or don't these kind of protests. But it's uh, interesting what the political view is with regards to, say, climate change and its impact on poorer nations and individuals. So those on the left tend to be more supportive of the fact that more needs to be done for the poorer nations, whereas those on the right uh, seem to feel that isn't the case. We didn't find um, such a stark sort of difference when we were looking at gender. We didn't find such a stark difference when we looked at, say, age. But this did come up in terms of, you know, how much needs to be done for the poorer countries. And uh, again, that is that is an important conversation to be had. And frankly, I think journalism is the space to have it about what just transition looks like, what loss and damages look like, um, what kind of support to countries that are really sort of in, in, in some parts collapsing with the way climate change is wreaking havoc on them uh, need. Um, so yeah, lots of interesting little tidbits there. And yeah, Wakas, are, the data shows that those in the global south countries perceive larger effects of climate change in health than those in the global north. So that difference, like Mitali was mentioning, do we know whether this is related to the way the news media covers the issue in countries such as the UK or the US? Uh, I think that uh, I will be careful by, by, when I answer this question because in a way, we can hint, we can find some information that uh, there is a relationship there, where, uh, how people consume news on the climate change and what do they, how do they perceive about the impacts of uh, climate change on in their health. But I, I'm not hundred percent confident about if there is a there is a causal relationship between the two. But we do have some indications that uh, consuming news is kind of uh, allow people to make this connection relatively easier when they consume frequent news on climate change. Uh, now, the other aspect of the question that you mentioned um, regarding the larger effects, I think what is very interesting in our report is that the clear segregation of global south and north where we see countries that have a better health infrastructure tend to believe that they, the, in, the impacts are small. Uh, Whereas the countries which are developing, they believe that they, they are suffering from large impacts of climate change on their health. So and that uh, that again shows us uh, how the importance of uh, the idea of justice between the two set of countries. On one hand side, on the other hand side is that what was striking for me was it takes a lot of cognition and uh, uh, understanding about the issue itself. If people in Pakistan, India, and Brazil can make this assessment that climate change is impacting uh, their health significantly, I think it it does not really uh, it, it should not depend on uh, the infrastructure in individual countries. But it's the recognition that I felt was very surprising for me to find out among countries who are not very well known to make this connection you know on the go they it, it requires a lot of uh, the high level of education your experience with climate change 
uh, your media literacy, your information uh, and your level of education in, in, in respective countries. But um, seeing that this was relatively easily made in the countries, uh, like I mentioned, it was something that uh, stood out in terms of the findings of this report. It's important to remind our listeners that this is a pretty unique piece of research. It's also important to stress that it is part of the Oxford Climate Journalism Network, an initiative which has hosted 400 journalists for more than 100 countries to enhance the coverage of the climate crisis. Mitali, you've been a practicing journalist for over two decades and now lead our journalist uh, programs, including our climate network. Why do you think this kind of research matters for journalists around the world? Um so I have spoken a little bit about, you know, what the program looks like, Rettel. I will say that the reason I think it's important is because, first and foremost, what I think newsrooms should sort of move away from is the practice or idea that climate is the responsibility of one reporter or one desk or the fact that there's an extreme weather event. It It is a lens, and, you know, I say that continually. It is a lens that we need to attach to every story that we do. Every sports story has a climate context to it. Every beauty and luxury lifestyle story has a climate context to it. We just need to know how to tell it right. And we need to be accurate in, uh, you know, our reportage. Um, I will sort of take a few steps back and say it's been a really fun process doing this research. I think I can say confidently we're the only ones who are doing this kind of research around audience and, you know, climate news. And when Vakas, Richard and I, you know, the three authors of this sat down, I think we had a long list of maybe 20 or 30 items that we wanted to put into the report. There was so much that we wanted to say and discuss, and then we streamlined it. Um, Vakas has been leading on this report, and it's been very fun, you know, working with him and Richard on it. Um, we need to support this kind of work. We need to support the kind of work that is helping journalists tell, you know, climate stories the most accurately. We need to know what audiences are looking for. And we need to be clear about, you know, where impact is possible. And if audiences are turning to newsrooms and journalists in order to, um, in the hope of seeing some kind of positive change from influential parties, including politicians and industrialists, then, you know, I think that's that's a clear enough goal for most newsrooms across the world. Um, we need to build critical awareness. And I hope this research is sort of a step in that direction. I will just finish by saying none of this is possible without the larger team. Uh, the Oxford Climate Team is a fantastic bunch of individuals, very driven and passionate about what they're doing. Our partners, Laudes, who have supported this research report, and we are very grateful for that. Um, and the University of Oxford, of course, which sort of encourages this good mix of what we do uh, in terms of bringing the professional world into the research world. And um, I hope we can sort of continue to do that. And it's useful for people across the world. Well, thank you so much, Mitali and Wakas for joining us today. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. Our guests today were Mitali Mukherjee, Acting Director of the Reuters Institute and Director of his Journalist Programs, and Wakas Ajaz, one of the members of our research team. Mitali Wakas and Richard Fletcher are the authors of Climate Change News Audiences, Analysis of How News Usage and Attitudes in Eight Countries, a new report on how audiences in eight countries follow the news on, on the climate crisis. Make sure to follow our podcast channel on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so that you don't miss the next episode. And if you don't want to miss any news from the Institute, subscribe to our weekly newsletter by clicking the link on our bio on X or on our homepage. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to Future of Journalism, a podcast from the Reuters Institute for the study of journalism. I'm Gretel Kahn, one of the members of the Institute's editorial team. We'll be back soon.